0: building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On The Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show.
1: So Jeff, you're gonna be one of those guys that we're gonna have on a lot, because you have a way of saying things that are amazing. And, and we're gonna take on an issue now that is the issue of the day. And it's the issue that our friend John Stone Street says about that things that were unthinkable 10 years ago are unquestionable today. Right. So we're going to talk about gender identity, gender dysphoria. You're going to give some very biblical content about around that, how to think logically. And then we'll get to the person who's listening to this show going, yeah, that's all nice. And I agree with you guys, you're preaching to the choir, but my son just came to me right. and said, he's exactly. a girl. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. So, um, I don't want to talk too much in this cause you have so much great content. So, um, help us out, you know, maybe starting off with is sex, which is male and female and gender, which is boy, girl, um, are they the same? Are they different Is one of them, a social construct? And then take us
2: from there. Right. Well, years ago, I first encountered this in 1989, um, an article called doing gender that we read in our doctoral program. And when? in 1989, so this is not new, this is 30 some years ago, it was in the time that critical theory was emerging, trying to, trying to replace the idea of a Western canon of law with, a, with more of a socially constructed understanding of law. And the theory was that sexuality and gender are two different things, that sexuality can be biological, male and female, but gender is how you identify. That idea of social construction of reality, again, goes back to an assumption that truth is up to the individual. or or truth, but at best, it's culturally situated, that there is no truth that is out there that we can really know. So most people started with that. That's a really important thing to understand, Ken, that the battle of our day is not between Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and liberals or red states and blue states, or even the religious and the non-religious. The battle of our day is over whether we can know truth. Most Americans today have decided that truth is up to the individual That it's not out there to be discovered, which is the classical understanding. And the biblical understanding fits in that classical understanding. Because the biblical understanding is the truth that does exist. And it can be expressed mathematically. It can be expressed scientifically. It can be expressed logically. But it's more than that. It's a person. It's Jesus. The truth is in the incarnation of Jesus. Okay. So as culture has moved away from that into the idea that truth is up to the individual, then your personal feelings about your own life situation, which are important because we do, our situations do shape us to a large extent, has replaced the idea that we can know what is true. So it is a theory that gender and sexuality are different, not a fact. That's the most important thing we need to understand when somebody says, well, gender and sexuality are different. They're not making a factual claim. They're make, they're stating essentially an opinion. Now it's an opinion that lots and lots of people hold and lots and lots of scholars have written about, but they're not stating something that is factually or scientifically the case they're expressing an ideology. So I I, want
1: to, put this into the sort of terms of how I hear things because, um, I love history, right? And the, the the thing about America, the United States, that's so original is freedom and freedom from class. That is to say, you can go from one class to another. I was raised lower middle class. I'm, I'm now in a different class and, and in America, no problem. If I was in India, not going to happen. If I was in great Britain, a lot more difficult to make that happen. Right. So for the history of mankind, where you're born is where you stay, that is who you are. And that's who you will stay. And, um, even, you know, officers in world war one in in great Britain, you know, one of the reasons that they had, they had struggles was you had to be rich to be an officer. It wasn't had nothing to do with ability. Okay. So now the, the founding fathers knew when they put together the constitution that there would always be the oppressors who would want to rise to power and then keep everybody else where they belong so that they can hold their own power. What I just heard you describe that to me. I just heard you say that, that critical theory is saying, if you're black, this is where you belong. If you're poor, if you came from this part of the country, if you're this, if you're that. And it sounds to me like an entire construct to keep everybody where they belong so that the ruling class can have more power. That's what I hear.
2: It certainly can end up moving in that direction. Our our founders said that every person has an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and it's up to the government to secure those rights, not to give those rights. So when the government begins to say, for example, one group of people over here, another group of people over here, we intuitively know that's wrong. Whether they're doing it based on race or your medical status or your... Or your sexuality or whatever it happens to be and this is what we're seeing right now in the state of california which has recently passed a law saying that in toy stores there must be a transgender section so young you know young people who are already experiencing gender dysphoria are now sent to a separate part of the store as if they were all, you know, not right. already struggling right. enough with how they identify. Now they have to go over here. They get pushed into a category and marginalized. All of that stuff happens when you forsake the very idea that there's a biblical route to masculinity and femininity. So that's really what I'd love to dig into.
1: Yeah. And as we get into that, uh, there was a study I read 30 years ago. I still remember I was on the LAPD. I was up at the, uh, the where I had to, write reports and there was a newsweek article there i'm pretty sure it was newsweek and in that article they talked about a study they did where they took um a certain amount of boys and a certain amount of girls when they were born they put them in a study to completely control and exclude any cultural influences what they wanted to do was prove of course 30 years ago i didn't realize that that it was all a control cultural construct when they got to be around two you sort of wonder what parents give their baby up to right but When they got to be round two, the boys started to go to the Tonka trucks and the girls all started to go to the easy bake ovens and the boys would beat each other over the head with the rifle and the girls would play with the dolls and they actually started to interfere with the study because this was not what they wanted to have happen. And they started giving the girls the truck and the girls would put the truck down and go back to the easy bake oven. And the theory, this whole study completely disproved everything that they were trying to push so that they just buried the study and and so that nobody would know about it.
2: Right. Well, it was child abuse to conduct a study like that to begin with, but but that happens a lot in the academy as well. Because if you embrace wrong assumptions, then it seems perfectly moral for you to mistreat people in that way and, and try to control them. But, but you're right. There are 6,500 scientific medical differences between men and women. Really? 6,500? It's not just XX chromosome versus XY chromosome. There are 6,500 differences. Those differences are biological. They're hormonal. Let me give you some examples. Uh, in, in your eyes, our eyes have rods and cones, two different kinds of cells. Boys have a preponderance of rods, Those rods are are the kinds of cells in your eyes that focus on motion and contrast. Hmm. Women have more cones which focus on color and texture. That totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. I I mean, I would would take my children to church and have them sit in grown-up church. I would give them colored pencils and paper and they could draw whatever they wanted while they were sitting there. My boys only ever wanted the red one and the black one. And they were making tanks and then shooting people and there was blood and all of that, you know, it <laughs> right. was, it was the motion and the contrast. My daughters were making houses and gardens and people and families and all of those kinds of things with lots and lots of color. <laughs> and and so, the social constructionist is going to say well you you just socialized with them that way but the reality is what they're drawn to visually is different because of the way their eyes were made to be different second major difference is women seem to have we have two hemispheres of our brain left and right women tend to have more connecting points between the two hemispheres of the brain people have always wondered why is it possible for women to recover more easily from strokes because in a stroke a certain part of your brain is disabled if you have more connecting points then your brain is able to compensate more easily but this also has to do with how we as is people see the world men tend to be more unitary in their focus so you imagine the two hemispheres of the brain men tend to run up one side and down, and and then they cross over once and then they run up the other side yes, right? right but women go back and forth all of the time women's brains operate at a higher temperature than men's brains they're more active and men are more solitary in their focus. All of these things are are biological that relate to our cultural situation, but that are part of who we were designed to be.
1: I was just having this conversation yesterday about the fact that if you have eight guys in a a room, all eight guys will have one conversation. So one guy talks and then another guy talks and then everyone kind of participates. If you have women, they break up into little groups. And, And what's weird is they can hear each other. So one woman's talking here and then over here, she's like, oh, and then she turns and she starts talking to her. I'm like, how
2: do they do that? Because I don't. If I'm talking to you, I don't yeah. hear that person. And, and I have this happen at my house all of the time where Stephanie will say, oh, can you do this for me? And then, oh, and also, can you do this? And then also, can you do this? And I will say <laughs> one thing at a time, or let me make a list. I'm just not capable of, I'm, I, I'm really good at drilling down on one thing and doing it. Yeah. Stephanie's really good at multitasking. All of the studies of multitasking say that women are far better at multitasking than men. And that goes back to how our very bodies were designed. This is the kind of thing that gets ignored when people start with the assumption that everybody's a blank slate and that gender is socially constructed.
1: Well, the most obvious to me is pregnancy. If you if, if one person can get pregnant and one can't, they will necessarily view the entire world differently, especially sex. Right. Because if for a woman, sex is... Uh, every every sexual encounter is a potential life altering a moment called pregnancy for a man it's a five second orgasm and he's uh, he's gone i mean that that would those two things right there would completely alter how you would see the world
2: mm-hmm. yeah there's no question yeah I, I think there there are a lot of things that we need to to talk about i i would really love to just see as christians and i'm speaking as a christian i don't know who's watching or who's listening People may be all over the map, but it seems to me, when you look back at the creation account in scripture, you see some things that are differences between men and women that are reflective of what is true rather than the imposition of a certain cultural mindset. All right. So take us there to generate Genesis 1 through 3. So, So years ago, I had a mentor named Paul Stanley. And a great leader developer, he recently passed away. Wasn't he also the lead singer for Kiss? <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I, got, I mentioned Paul Stanley in, a, in an email newsletter one time, and somebody wrote to me, I'm so disappointed that you had, your mentor <laughs> is Paul Stanley from <laughs> I think it's pretty cool, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm more of an Ace Freely guy. But- right. <laughs> so Paul introduced me to an Episcopal priest from Waxahachie, Texas man looks like santa claus with the big beard and the whole bit his name is bill mauser and he and his wife had gone through and identified five aspects of masculinity and five aspects of femininity from scripture they looked at genesis 1 2 and 3 they looked at the proverbs they looked at passages from the apostle paul in 1 corinthians and in and in ephesians to see how those differences emerge And they put together a study, I think it's just called Five Aspects of Man and Five Aspects of Woman. There's nothing fancy about it. But I found it very compelling because at the time I was working with college students. I was a professor. I had done that for 14 years. And there were significant differences in how men and women engage in learning when they are at the university. So I took a group of guys and I said, here, here's, here we're gonna do a Bible study together if you want. There are only 20, people, 20 men in the Bible study and you will have to try out for the Bible study. Wow. Right, because I'm not gonna take just anybody. I'm only going to take those who I know are serious and who really want to learn. And then I said, we're gonna meet on Tuesday mornings at eight, in the, eight o'clock in the morning, not 8.01. <laughs> the door will be closed. If you are not there, you're out. And there will be homework. Now, it was fascinating, I had almost every young man at that college want to sign up for this class because it was competitive. They realized there was something at stake. All of the other classes that said, this study is open to as many people who want to come. Just if you're interested, come to it. And the guys didn't want to go to it. Because if it's open to anybody, right. then there's no
1: point, totally see right? That. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So in the study, we began to look at these biblical aspects of masculinity. Genesis chapter one, for example, this is before woman was created in Genesis chapter two, God said, let us make man in our image and make him to rule and subdue. In other words, God was saying, I'm taking this world and I'm I'm creating it unfinished. So you will finish it. You will take this world and turn it from a wilderness into a garden. You will rule it and you will subdue it. You can take away from that what Bill Mauser called the Lord of the Earth. And if you look throughout history, in virtually every case, it was men who were the explorers, the the ones who went out, the ones who went across the ocean. No, No woman's going to do that. She's too smart. Right. And she's not going to get into a leaky boat and say, Oh, yeah, we don't know if there's a land on the other side. We could drop off the edge, but you know, let's try it and see <laughs> if that's something a man is going to do. Right. And but even think about just the way men interact with one another. In your podcast, we're sitting here side by side. Okay. If we were sitting facing one another, both of us would think that's a little weird. That's a little creepy. Right. Yeah, we got to, we gotta sit side by side. When how do men talk? They talk when they're going someplace. What are they doing? They're walking side by side or they're riding in their truck side by side that men tend to interact best when they are doing something. There's certain man rules
1: that you don't think about. Like yesterday when I was in the airport and there was like 20 urinals and they're they're all empty except for me. And then some dude walks up and starts peeing
2: next to me. It's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Right. I mean, Wait, go over there. There have actually been academic <laughs> studies on that and how that re- that really gets to, to men. Uh, when, you know, the guy comes up right next to you with all the other available. Yeah, urine, right. They actually intentionally sent people in to go right in the... In the one right next to the guy who was already there. It's so, just, there's a, there a secret camera on me yesterday. <laughs> I was a victim of a study. Yeah. You can get funding to do academic studies of all kinds. But right. there's certain, we,
1: and we don't even necessarily have to be taught. We just understand there are certain man rules, certain amount of spacing. Right. And when someone violates that, like you get the close talker, you're like, dude, get, get off me, man. Right.
2: You know, there's yeah. just certain things. Right. You're, you're dead on. And there's so much of this kind of thing. Social construction can explain a lot. It can explain, you know, you had a bad childhood experience. It affects all of your other interactions. There's no question about that. But there's so much of this kind of evidence. So much of history is explained best by understanding this biblical framework. So so Lord of the earth would be one. Then you move into Genesis chapter 2. God put the man in the garden to work it and to care for it. There was work before there was a fall. And man is in there. What is he doing? He is, he is what Bill Mauser called a husbandman. You know, people go to school today to study animal husbandry. What they mean by that is the caring for and the maturing of animals. It's something that God designed for the man to do. In other words, I want you to go I want you to not only explore the earth, and subdue it, I want you to go into the garden and care for it. That a man is known by his ability to mature the things and the people that are in his realm of influence. So it's a reasonable question to ask men in a group, how are the people who are around you better off because you are there? And if you have a hard time answering that question, then let's start there and figure out. How do we make sure that the people who are around us are better off? The people who run the most successful companies are not just the smartest people, but the people who know how to develop other people, right? There's even a sense in which a company is not other people helping you run a successful company, but having your company there to help the people become successful.
1: I've always told my kids that PhDs work for people who have personalities, right? Right. If, If you have to be able to engage lots of people in a positive manner to be successful. That's right.
2: Yeah. And that's the husbandman aspect. So somebody who's a farmer or a rancher would immediately understand that. Other people who don't have an experience with nature might find it to be more difficult, but men and women in the workplace engage with people differently. So this is a specific thing that God said to a man. I want you to go into the garden. I want you to work it and to keep it. Then third, when you look at the, at the book of Proverbs, you see also that masculinity and femininity appear in our understanding of wisdom. Proverbs chapter nine, lady wisdom appears, that wisdom is personified as a woman, but folly is also personified as a woman, that lady wisdom instructs, lady folly seduces. Mm. But but wisdom is a key aspect, so much of scripture And, and there's even more in the Catholic Bible. There's more in the Protestant than even in the Protestant Bible of this wisdom literature, but it's common in all cultures to have this wisdom literature. And it's always, how do men become sages? How do you become the kind of man like Solomon when presented with an impossible situation, figure out how to respond wisely in scripture, scriptural times? There, there was a, the the idea of having a, a throne essentially at the gate of the city. Mm-hmm. So you see all throughout scripture, a man will be shown to be wise in the city gates. If you've ever been to one of these cities, I think you, you have, you've seen them. They excavate these cities and there's the throne right there. And that's where Absalom went <clears throat> to get the right. people to think he was Ex- the king. Exactly. Yeah. So he was trying to show himself to be wise in the city gates and ended up showing himself to be a fool in the city gates, because his decisions were poor. But people didn't make decisions like the Supreme Court makes them today, in conference, in secret, with no media present. They made their decisions right out in the open. Whether a man was wise or foolish would be immediately evident to anyone who came to visit that city, because all of the decisions were right out there in the open. So, you see in Genesis chapter 2, you see that you see that beginning to emerge the man has to be wise god has essentially said here peach trees i want you to figure out how to help them make more peaches here's a wheat field i want more greater yield here are your sheep i want more of them and healthy ones all of that kind of thing the husbandman aspect that that moved into wisdom genesis chapter 3 is where i i think a lot of i've taught on this so much and this helps men so much what was the man's responsibility? Now I'm I'm going to infer a lot of things from scripture that I can't prove, just looking at the context of it. But who between the man and the woman knew that the serpent was or that the, the serpent was potentially bad? Because you see, in Genesis chapter two, God said to the man, name all of the animals. Right. Naming in Hebrew isn't just giving a label to, it is identifying the personality of. So Adam would have named these creatures and he would have known that the serpent was right. sneaky, crafty. Okay. And, and God also gave him boundaries. He said, of all of the trees in the garden, you may eat But of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so you and may not eat- important that people remember that he only told Adam that not he only eat. Only told Adam, you may not eat of this from the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So move on to Genesis chapter three, the serpent doesn't approach the man. The man knows its personality, right? He's going to be less likely to be tricked. The serpent approaches woman and says, essentially, did God really say? In other words, God's not really good. God doesn't really have your best interests in mind. And he said, did God really say you may not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to him, and I say woman because her name was not Eve yet until the end of chapter three. I never thought about Um, that. So a woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we may not eat, nor may we touch it, or we will die. Well, where did she get that idea that you may not even touch the tree? And you, st- I, I, I have a hunch, and I'll ask about it when I get to heaven. I'll try to send you a text. It, it'll, I'm assuming that I'm going to go there before you, maybe. But <laughs> the... He, the, the I think it's possible that Adam, in his responsibility as steward, mistaught his wife. Maybe she looked at the tree and picked one of the pieces of fruit. A man would never do that because you never take food in your hand unless you intend to eat it. Right? <laughs> so, so maybe she's she picked a piece of the fruit and he has having a heart attack. If she's got it in her hand, she might eat it. So he said, Look, woman, because that was her name, don't eat it. Don't even touch it. Okay. Can't eat it. We can't touch it. So woman was vulnerable at that moment, possibly because the man had misinstructed her. Hmm. But then what did the, what, what happened in Genesis chapter three, woman takes the fruit, she eats it. And scripture is very straightforward about this. Then she gives some to her husband who was with her and he ate. He knew the rules. He knew the serpent was crafty, he stood in that situation where everything in their lives was on the line, and he didn't act. He didn't act as a protector. What, what, he, what could he have done? And the answer is he could have crushed the serpent. Mm-hmm. So when God pronounced the curse, he said to the serpent, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will crush his heel. That's, according to theologians, that's the proto-evangelium, that is the prototype of the gospel. Jesus will come, the Savior will come, who will ultimately and finally crush the work of Satan. But that word seed is really interesting. And I don't know how much of the theology we want to get into. It's a collective noun. Collective noun is a word that can refer to one thing and also many things, like deer. Or rice can refer to one grain of rice or a bag of rice or a truckload of rice. It's a collective noun. In other words, that word seed refers to the one who will ultimately come and crush the work of Satan, but it also refers to all of the offspring as a group. Mm. So, Walt Kaiser, who's a very famous, well-respected Old Testament scholar, is the one who pointed this out. I thought it was a fascinating observation, because there will come one who is a Messiah who will rescue. But in the meantime, we are to raise our children to be Satan crushers, to act in the world in such a positive way that evil is rolled back and diminished in its power to control us. Mm-hmm. I think the Apostle Paul had this understanding in Romans 16, 20. He said, the God of peace will soon, God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Mm that you you and I are designed to, and our children are designed to be Satan crushers. There's no wonder there's a war against babies because if, if Satan wants to win, he has to stop babies from being born. If he can't stop them from being born at all, then he has to stop them from being influenced by their parents to become Satan crushers. He has to get them outside of the home so that all of the key influences in their lives happen in education, social media, other places. He's
1: doing a really good job right now, both. 65 million babies killed in the United States since Roe versus Wade. And we see our educational system now absolutely brainwashing our kids.
2: Yeah. And and not to mention the fact that we've got an entire generation of people who don't want to have children. Boy, that's right. Because they say... How could I bring a child into a world like this? Well, this world needs your children. I'm not giving advice here on procreation or anything. I'm just saying that Satan benefits when children are attacked because he knows exactly what is going on. You, in fact, you look in scripture at the key moment in history, the incarnation of Jesus, what did Herod do? Try to destroy all of the male children, right? There's some, There's real power in this biblical understanding. Well, what happens to the man in Genesis chapter three? God says the earth is going to rebel against you as you have rebelled against me. So with the sweat of your brow, you're going to still pursue this work. You're still going to be a lord of the earth. You're still going to be a husbandman. But now it's it's a lot of it's not going to be fun anymore. It's going to be really hard. There's there's a sense in which the man was was encouraged there to to rise up. So the, the curse on the serpent, that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, kind, kind of, I think, is sort of the root of our understanding today of the warrior, the defender, the protector, the, I guess you could say, savior, that this impulse that men have to intervene and to rescue people and to take a stand and to do what is right, comes out of that horrible experience in Genesis chapter three, when our first father didn't act when he should have. Mm. But God gave him another chance. So we act in that way as warriors, as defenders and protectors. So here's the core problem, and this I think is where it leads us to understanding the gender identity crisis today. In our sinful nature, we tend to either abuse or abandon the God-given aspects that we have we abuse them. So a warrior defender protector abuses his aspect of being a warrior by warring against the wrong people for the wrong reasons at the wrong times. Or he might abandon that by refusing to stand up for what is right when he knows that he should. These aspects I think can, they, they have very little to do with the masculine feminine stereotypes. That we have in our culture today. That's an important statement. It's really significant to understand that if you have a son who is a musician, he can be a godly, masculine musician. He doesn't have to be out in the field hunting. He doesn't because have to there's be other ways to crush the Satan. There are all kinds of ways. Is it important to crush the work of Satan in the arts? No oh, man. Absolutely and without question. Last week I had a whole workshop on a worldview and apologetics workshop with Christian artists and filmmakers. They are very talented, sensitive, artistic oriented. They're not necessarily rough and tumble, but they are, they're exerting a strong influence in a unique way as men and a unique way as women to, to crush Satan's work. A good song, David sang songs. David wrote songs.
1: David played the lyre.
2: Which is a half guitar, half
1: harp type of thing.
2: Right, right. If we were to look at just the life of David, we'd realize, man, our stereotypes today of men just being dumb. Yeah, jocks David and dancing whatever. and
1: crying and, and playing music, and I mean, he's all over the place.
2: Right. I mean, so if we have to, we set aside all of those cultural stereotypes and look back for biblical prototypes, we're going to be a lot better off, and it will help us.
1: You know, so, it is interesting to take sort of a, a little break from that to put you know some practical cultural things around it where have our cultural stereotypes come from because when you see this overly machoized version it really ha- got ramped up in the 60s which is weird yeah. because the 60s was when we had you know all the hippies and everything right. but what came along in the 60s it was james bond movies mm-hmm. and it was Clint Eastwood movies yeah. and in both cases we see in james bond a guy with no friends Right? A guy who never, ever has to re- risk being rejected by women because they all just fall over him whenever, whenever he shows up. Drinks a lot, promiscuous, violent. And in is it, we see a, an Americanized version of that in the Clint Eastwood movies. He has no friends. Right. Um, he's just stronger than everybody else, and they all look up to him and, 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 eastwood actually i mean there's some scenes in some of his movies there's a rape scene in one of the movies that he throws the girl down to teach her a lesson and rapes her it's horrible so we see this perpetuation of those stereotypes kind of got so lifted up that i think culture now is rebelling against those because they were so destructive and men saw that not necessarily as a that's a kind of the the fantasy man weird thing but rather tried to emulate that and then were very destructive towards women
2: yeah. There, there was a study done at, uh, out at Stanford University that found that four out of five young adults today, ages 12 to 22, do not have a sense of purpose and that they know where they're going in life and why they would go there. That, I think, began in the 1960s. Now, my grandfather fought in World War II. My grandfather was on the D-Day beaches four or five days after, at age 20, his job was to unload and send the material from all of the ships. He was in charge of this at age 20. Every ship that came in with war material, he was the guy at age 20 to make sure that it got into the dock, got all the material moved for the war because they're setting up the whole next phase of the war. They put a 20-year-old in charge of that. 20-year-olds are in charge of that on their video game. (laughs) I mean, would you today, I I think, I think I'm not even sure I'd want to be in charge of that at at my age, with the leadership experience that I have had, there's a lot at stake. Uh, So my grandfather's generation did not struggle with that sense of purpose. There is a purpose. We're going to fight for truth. We're going to stand. We will, we know our cause is just, and we will sacrifice our lives if necessary. Then you move into the 1960s. The idea that truth is up to the individual rather than as something that can be discovered begins to become popular. You see a total change in the school curriculum. You see a change in the culture and film and so forth, as you've already mentioned. And then you raise an entire generation of people who don't even really understand that there is a difference between men and women.
0: Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities like Promise Keepers by crafting customized innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. Talking to Jeff Myers from Summit
1: Ministries about uh, gender, gender dysphoria, we've kind of we've gone through um, Genesis one through three because we want to make sure we have a biblical yeah. standpoint on this, and we're sort of starting to walk into now because when you get truth, and you tend to assign your experiences to that truth, and sometimes then you twist it, and so right now, you different generations hearing this. And some may be hearing what you're saying about we're we're, we're supposed to crush Satan, which is, sounds awesome, mm-hmm. but they may say, "Well, so we're all supposed to be macho," and now you're sort of saying, "Well, um, there's a masculinity that comes from God, not from Americanized culture, and they're not necessarily always aligned." Right. Yeah. Okay. So we have a biblical idea. You know, we we talked about the fact that there's 6,500 differences scientifically between a male brain and a female or body mm-hmm. and body. a female body. Mm-hmm. And, and then we see that in scripture, that there's a distinctive difference, not only in how God created us, but in what he called us to do. And then we've also seen that we, as a culture, tend to, we, we're, we're twisted human beings, we screw things up. And we have to, as Christians, continually go back to scripture and say, what do I think I know that's not aligning with Christ, mm-hmm. right? right? And so we saw that sometimes we have come up with male and female stereotypes that are, that are not always healthy. And we've done that in this country no question. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know if, if I'm a woman listening to this thinking, especially if she's been abused and hurt, she's thinking, man, I don't know that I really want to go back to strong men who are going to crush Satan because the picture crushed me in, right that picture you know?
2: she has in her mind, which is part of her life experience it's right. it's true it 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 led her to the place where a the, the stereotype of a man is the same thing as a man who abused her. That's why it's so important to understand when we talk about these biblical aspects that in our sin nature, we tend to abuse them or to abandon them. And a lot of men do both. They'll abuse their spouse and then abandon her. Or they'll, they'll abuse her by not, not husbanding her, not bringing out her great talents and gifts and abilities, which is what a, a husband would do right? That your your wife should be a much better person because you're cheerleading for her to help her be the very best, best person she can be. And what's it's important to jump case. in right,
1: right there, yeah. that always comes from a lack of masculinity, the need to control, dominate. It, it comes from insecurity. And so uh, what I want everyone to to be encouraged is biblical masculinity. It is, it is a lack of that that leads to the macho gross man, yeah. not... Not, it's not toxic masculinity, it's a lack of masculinity.
2: Well, it, it's casting about to try to find true masculinity. So when you and I were growing up, how do you know that you're a man? When you can drive a car, when you can have sex, when you can smoke a cigarette, when you can drink beer, and you can hold your liquor. You know, it's those are the kinds of and things. I, and also fist fight, because I came from like the <laughs> redneck Oregon. <laughs> Uh, So I wasn't the fist fighter type, but I was on the debate team and I would still, I would still think it was fantastic if I could crush my opponent with the overwhelming power of my logic. (laughs) But, but that's,
1: that's the cultural idea. Your skill works better now at this age than mine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't find mine to be terribly useful. I think you figured out both along the way. Somehow (laughs) this is, this is really important to understand that when we abuse or abandon our masculinity, it is because we are in the search of something that is truer than what we've been led to know by our culture. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is part of our sin nature and and women and children can bear the brunt of this. Other men can bear the brunt of this. So what does that have to do with
1: gender dysphoria now as we, as we transition over to men putting on dresses? Because right now we're talking about macho men. Right. Really, now we swung all the way around to, to guys running around in, in ballerina
2: slippers. Yeah. So if, we, if, we, if you reject up front that the Bible has anything to say about masculinity and femininity, if you reject the idea that there is any truth about masculinity or femininity in science that is relevant to the question of gender, If you accept without question that our reality is entirely socially constructed, that there's no there there, it's all just whatever we make it, Mm -hmm. then your strongest impulses form your identity. And for most people, their strongest impulses are their sexual impulses. So gender identity would very naturally emerge as the way that we figure out who we are in this world. Now, is
1: that true of women and men? The
2: sexual impulse being the number one impulse? I think it could be. Yeah, okay. I think it could be. The sexual chemistry of the brain is is very powerful. Now, the truth-based view that's reflected in Scripture is that that's why we have to discipline our sexuality it to be used in a certain way, like a fire in a hearth. It's powerful and useful there, but if the fire is on the structure of the building, it's destructive. So learning to harness our powers and use them in a godly way is is a huge part of what it means to be a man or to be a woman. But here's how I see this as a Christian. Anything that we place our identity in other than Christ will lead us to confusion and purposelessness. Amen.
1: Back to the critical theory. They want to put your identity and right. all these other things rather. Do than I have a gender truth. identity?
2: I do. Do I have a racial identity? I do. Do I have an economic identity? I do. Do I have a vocational identity? I do. But if I take any one of those things and I allow, allow it to be the primary organizing principle of my life other than Christ, then I will be misled. This is why when you see today the rise of transgender thinking, gender dysphoria is real. The number of people who experience it where they have no strong attachment to masculinity or femininity, it's it's a tiny, tiny percentage of the population. Why is it that a third of kids today say they are transgender? It's not because they are, it's because this is where they are told they can find an identity that sets them apart from everybody else in their in their world. This is who I am, is what you will hear people say. Uh, at some ministries and our one of our key instructors is Christopher Yuan. Christopher came out of the oh, he teaches gay lifestyle. Uh, right? Yes, yeah, This fantastic speaker, communicator. He actually wrote a book called Holy Sexuality, and the whole point of the book is, whenever you place your identity in anything other than Christ, you will be misled. But if you place your identity primarily in your gender, if you say the most important thing about me is my gender, you'll be misled. If you say the most important thing about me is that I'm rich, you'll be misled. If you say the most important thing about me is that I am tough, you will be misled. If you say the most important thing about me is what Christ has done in my life and that shapes everything else. Then you begin to move toward the truth. So, yesterday I had lunch with with uh, Dr. Trent Langhoffer. He is the head of the Colorado Christian University Community Counseling Center, which is just a few miles down the road from from your office. People can come there and get free counseling in the Colorado Springs area, and it's a tremendous work. Now,
1: what uh, if they were in Denver? Could they drive down? I and- think
2: there uh, there might be one in Denver as well. You okay. could check out just check out the Colorado Christian University, and there are a lot of other counseling group which too.
1: by the way just as a, a plug Colorado Christian University is one of the great Christian excellent that's universities standing strong yeah. yes a lot yeah. of the other ones boy we talked about this last time a little bit but just yeah. a plug for Colorado Christian if yeah. you're looking for a great Christian school to send your kids yeah. to
2: it's a fine. Yeah, one. I would absolutely check that out we send lots of, I think I have 70 graduates of my summit program who are enrolled in, wow. in their undergraduate really? school right now well no I 70 who took we have a scholarship that you get, if you come to Summit Ministries for two weeks, then you go to Colorado Christian University. Over the course of four years, they give you five, extra $5,000 scholarship. Extra shameless gift. plug. <laughs> okay, so you guys are having so lunch. I have 70 new ones in their class this year uh, who are from Summit Ministries. So we're having lunch. And I asked Trent about this because I knew this conversation was coming. And he said, every time, uh, I don't wanna put words in his mouth. I'll just say it this way when a person is struggling with gender dysphoria he said we don't start with that we start with what are the hurts in their lives that are unhealed what are those wounds we can identify what those are and help them find healing then the other issues resolve and i I thought what he said is really consistent with some of the research that i've seen on gender dysphoria that seventy percent of gender dysphoria that teenagers experience resolves by the time they finish their teenage years. In other words, they, it resolves into their gender identity being se- consistent se- with. Say their that again. Seventy percent. Seventy percent of the gender identity issues resolve in the teenage years as that person develops a stronger attachment between their gender, their gender identity and their biological masculinity. So what a travesty that
1: we're giving, uh, puberty blockers that will permanently screw up the bodies of these kids before they're old enough. And you're telling me that we know from data that 70% will have.
2: There's a recent case in Great Britain where the court essentially decided that it was child abuse. That could spread here. This could be a short-lived movement in so-called gender counseling, which in states now like Colorado is going to be provided. Even religious organizations are now, the state is moving toward saying, you have to provide this gender therapy. The way the state prescribes it as part of your insurance plan even if you're a christian organization so this is a whole new battle that we're going to probably be fighting soon but it's not just the physical it is also the mental aspect of it the therapists mess with the minds of these kids to get them so confused that they can no longer see the truth and and that's where the, the The whole, we started out talking about the toys in California, the toy stores. This has been tried for a long, long time. I remember, I think it was Mattel came out with a gender neutral doll back in the 1970s. The girls took it and played with it as a doll. The boys took it and used it as swords and beat each other over the the head with it. This has been tried before. The difference now is that in the psychological field and even in the medical field, standard practice is to what I would say, I would refer to it as messing with the minds and the bodies of kids to try to get them to conform to an ideology about gender that is not either natural physically or biblical in terms of what we understand God designing men and women to be like.
1: So, okay. So we've now, I think, gone down to the nitty gritty on this, but the real nitty gritty is for people listening to this. I get phone calls, I get social media contacts, I get people emailing that they have a child who sometimes young and sometimes older. I mean, I had one guy contact me, his his daughter went off to uh, Hollywood and decided when she got there at 23 or 24 years old that she was a man, and they, they don't know what to do. It seems to me you gave us a bit of a hint um, when you said we need to identify what the hurts are. If you're a father of a child like that, one of the first, the first things you might want to go to is... Uh, not in a condemning way, but to find out where are they and was I the source of them and can I help apologize or heal Mm -hmm. There's a remarkable amount of healing that can happen from a father who identifies maybe where he fell short in, in a a genuine way, asks for forgiveness. And I always want to tell people asking for forgiveness is not saying I'm really sorry about that. Asking for forgiveness is acknowledging the hurt that you caused the other person. Honey, I was late. And then you've been sitting here for 15 minutes and I'm so sorry that you had to sit here for 15 minutes waiting for me. You should never have to wait for me. That's an apology. I've acknowledged the inconvenience or the pain that I caused the other person. Yeah. Not, well, I'm sorry I'm late. I mean, traffic was hard. That's not an apology. That's an excuse. Yeah.
2: Christian counseling, I think, can be a, a big help in this. You would have to carefully select counselors. Where do you find a good godly counselor? Because a lot of them are Christians, but they suck. Yeah.
1: <sighs> That's a biblical uh, phrase, by the way. Yeah.
2: So. <laughs> I I turn to, if I need a counselor for one of my students, when they go back home, because we can help them when they're at Summit Ministries, but when they go back home, what what do they do? I, I usually turn to my friends at Colorado Christian University, Dr. Trent Langhoffer, Dr. Ryan um, Burhart, and those those guys can help me. Focus on the Family also has a list of... Christian counselors, uh, Dr. James Dobson Family Talk has you a counseling. Brian, Wilson. our
1: producer is with Dobson. Um, where do they get Dobson's?
2: Yeah, you can go to Dr. James Dr. and there is a resource pull down. And from there, they'll put you in touch with American Association of Christian Counselors. They have a
1: referral network as well
2: run by Tim Klein, yeah. which is also a good friend. So, yeah. okay. they. So, those counselors probably won't start with the gender identity issue. That's what parents are, that's what brings people to the counseling. So, the parents going, fix my kid. (laughs) Fix him so that he realizes he's a boy, or fix her so she realizes she's a girl. A a, a teenager has very limited experience of what it even means to be in a, you know, for a girl to be in a a female body or a boy to be in a male body. So, they, pro- they probably won't start with that. They'll probably start with identifying those hurts. Those and family counseling can be a really important part of this. How do we redo our family life? And it's, it's true with everything else. If somebody was an alcoholic and they decide, I'm not going to drink anymore, why is it so important to be an Alcoholics Anonymous? Because you've changed the operating system that your family is used to a lot of families get worse when the person gets healed because they, have, they had no categories for trying to figure out how to deal with a sober mom or a sober dad, right. right? So the family counseling part of this is going to be really important as well. The point is that most of those gender identity issues resolve, especially the more each person in the family is able to say, you know, if our core identity is in Christ, What does that mean? Not all of them will resolve, but a young person today who says, I'm experiencing gender dysphoria may be experiencing a social contagion about gender dysphoria because there's so much in the news about it. We have to keep that in mind, the significant impact of that social media, especially things like TikTok, have on kids. So if you're a, if you're a young adult and you're struggling with your identity, where do you turn for help? You don't turn to your parents. You don't turn to your pastor. You turn to TikTok where people tell their stories and their experiences and you think, "Oh yeah, I felt that before. Oh yeah, I felt that before." But it it, it it's it can be thought of as a mind game similar to what uh, to what a mind reader would use. So let's say you're in Manitou Springs, you're walking down the street and there's somebody doing tarot cards or Say, I'll, I'll, I'll give you your future, those kinds of things. They use all sorts of tricks so that when you're with them, you feel like, oh, wow, they are really accurate. But they're just making general observations about humanity that you then personally internalize and use to explain things yourself. It's the same reason why you go out and buy a new truck and you think, man, I don't know if I should have done that. The payments are kind of high and all of that but you talk yourself into it having been a good decision, right? It's just, it's just the way we as human beings are. We're really good at rationalizing things. So if you look at the influences of a young person, I think that's important. I, I would also recommend taking a look at the book Screens and Teens by Dr. Kathy Cook. Screens and Teens. Kathy Cook, and it's spelled K-O-C-H to try to bring balance to all those social media influences coming into the family.
1: I think it's important right now for people to, a couple of things. First of all, we talked about Satan. He he definitely he hates God and God has created human beings to these frail yeah. new newish part of creation that are stuck in in decaying bodies to humiliate Satan to crush Satan. He hates us and we we can see his plans. We said we're not unaware of his schemes and we can see his schemes here in that right now part of critical theory is making people feel bad about who they are right Right. so we look at our kids right now especially white kids you're evil because you're white you're evil because you're male you're evil because you're an american on and on and on and on and on the way to get out of that is to grab onto one of these other categories and the ultimate right now that trump's all is if i say i'm transgender then now i don't have to feel so guilty because i i'm transgender just read an article yesterday about uh, an american indian at yale did you see this mm-hmm. he's part of the yale republicans or something so he sent out a an invitation an email saying hey hey, y'all come to our halloween party it's going to be the best trap house halloween party and trap house apparently is the new term for kids that means cool party house where's yeah. everybody uses it it's in the urban dictionary yeah. Well, apparently at some point somebody somewhere decided trap house also had something to do with slavery oh. so they went after him demanding that he apologize for his whiteness and on all this kind of stuff and that and the the counselors descended on him if and even know, though he's, he's like american. i american i didn't even know yeah and then yeah. he's like oh, excuse me i'm native american I'm like, oops <laughs> see yeah. you're and so we're in this whole thing where if he was white and he said that we're let's hang him up and and even though he didn't even know what trap house meant because apparently it's supposed to be you know this term but once he was native American, well, my, my native American has trapped your blackness. So we see the pressure, the schemes of Satan on our kids. They don't want to be the bad one. Well, the easiest way for me to not be the bad one
2: is to say that I'm gay or transgender. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know we're broken. Do we build our identity around our victimhood? People are victimized yeah. and that's wrong and it needs to be addressed but do we build our identity around our victimhood? Mm -hmm. That's a big question. So if somebody says my gender identity or my racial identity or whatever, or the intersection, people talk about intersectionality a lot, the intersection of my race and gender make me doubly a victim. That's not the path toward healing. So this secular worldview that's taking root Says that identifying in your victimhood and developing a resentment is the key to healing. Boy. biblical view says transformation is the key to healing. Is your sexuality broken? Mine is. You know, that's part of my brokenness. If you I, desire anything other than your wife all the time, then it's broken, right? I remember well. I, I was in college and got my girlfriend pregnant, and part of got an abortion. Part of my part of my story, and and it's a it's a part of. To me, as I think back on it, that was a time where I abandoned my masculine responsibility. I remember the phone call where my girlfriend said, I think I'm pregnant. And I knew I should say something. And I did. But I paused. Just long enough for her to say, I think we should get an abortion. And I think... I think back on that conversation, I still wonder to this day if maybe she was thinking in that moment, isn't he just even a little bit happy Yeah. for us? Right. And my pause, my abandonment of my masculine responsibility in that moment ultimately led to an abortion. That decision then reverberates through history. I believe God has forgiven me for this. And but i had to talk with my other children about it at some point to say this is what i this is what i did i had to share that and be vulnerable and op- open with them so it's not hard to convince me that sexuality is something about us and about me that can be broken mm-hmm. the question is what is sin and is it possible for jesus to bring transformation to our bodies and our souls and our minds and our hearts, even in a completely secular age? And the answer is yes. I'm going to close this.
1: I want you to say the last word here, but I just want to say to the people listening to this right now, um, thinking through what it might be like if you were in this situation and, you, and your son or daughter needs to go to counseling, and that counseling may bring up stuff that you did to screw up, right? And so almost certainly, <laughs> yeah, Almost so, so, you may be thinking, you know, I smacked my kid around out of my bad temper when I shouldn't have, or I said some awful things or, 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 or the key to walking in Christ is dying to self daily to loving others as you love yourself. Right? So we need to put our, for men, our wives and our kids first for, for women, our husbands and our kids first. Um, it may be a bummer for you you may have to deal with some stuff you may have to apologize if you want to draw close to christ put others before yourself you may need to get your child into counseling and get them help because you love them and you love christ and in giving you will receive in 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 diminishing yourself he will raise you up as a real man there may be some crap you got to go through to get from here to there. So if you're listening to this and you're going, my kid is screwed up and it may not be gender dysphoria, maybe alcoholism, there may be a lot of things. Do what you got to do. It, there may be some pain you got to go through, but at the end of that, you will be much greater of a man. Your child, more importantly, will be closer to Christ and get healing. And the two of you together will be much further along the road to joy in Christ Jesus.
2: Right. I don't think we should assume that our healing is will happen quickly or that that it even means that the problem goes away. If you weighing 400 pounds and you start
1: running, you ain't going to be 200 next tomorrow. Right. (laughs) It's
2: a lot of work from here to there. And, And even when you think back at the shows, The Greatest Loser, what was the most difficult thing for those individuals? It was not losing the weight. It was developing a totally different lifestyle that enabled them to remain healthy from that point on. There's a sense in which we continue to live in our woundedness. Forgiveness is not just a one-time act. It is an ongoing relationship of forgiveness. So living in the woundedness is part of, for men, what it means to be a warrior, a defender, a protector, that we're, you know, Henry Nouwen called counseling, the, the wounded healers is how he described the wounded, the healers. wounded healers, that you've experienced those wounds. You still have those wounds, but those wounds take on new meaning. The scars that you experience then become scars that don't remind you of your pain, but they point you toward the one who resolves all pain. So the words of Christ
1: really bringing this home so much of what he was talking about was get rid of your identity and your bitterness and get your identity in Jesus to the extent that you forgive others is the extent to which you will be healed. How do you want to be forgiven? If Jesus is going to forgive you to the extent you've forgiven others, <laughs> wow. I better, better forgive everybody else completely because I want to be forgiven completely. That's right. Okay. So and as we close, man, this has been awesome as usual. Um, would you give your website and also we're going to put the, the, some of the websites on the screen. So if you're listening to this audio only, if you go to YouTube or whatever, and you want to see these, um, you can just go to the end of the, of the show and we'll have AACC. We'll have family talk and focus on the family so you can get counseling, but where do they
2: find you? Ours is easy to remember summit.org. Summit.org. I mean, I can even remember that one. <laughs> summit. so, so summit.com, well, <laughs> right? <laughs> In the South, where there's, there's a Summit Racing Team. So it's S-U-M-M-I-T-T. Oh. So they always ask me, the two T's? No, just one T. Two M's, one T. S-U-M-M-I-T.org. At that website, you can find information for the programs we have that are two weeks long, transformative programs for young adults 16 to 25 years of age. So any young adult who's sort of unsettled about their purpose in life, any young adult who says, I really want to know how to grow closer to Jesus and also deal with all the big questions that we have in our culture, questions I have about God and his word. We just tell them, write down all of your questions and bring them with you. Because while you're at summit, you dialogue with and and learn from the teachings of major thought leaders. Who will walk alongside of you? The transformation is so powerful. In one of these two week programs, George Barno recently did a pre test post test survey of our students. Two percent of young adults in the culture have a biblical worldview. Two percent. Really? After they finish the Summit Ministries program, eighty six percent have a biblical worldview.
1: So you are fourteen percent failure, man. Why aren't you at hundred <laughs> <That's true>. percent? <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me let me plug this. If you have a child who's getting ready to go to college get them in summit ministries if you have a child who's in college the quickest way to unscrew up your kid's brain is to get them into the world because here's the thing they can ask questions in a safe manner they can say i think the story of adam and Eve is complete bs and Mm -hmm. and jeff has been dealing with this forever and is going to be able to explain it to them in a way that's not condemning that they go oh 86% of them go, oh, 14%. I don't know. Yeah, They got to go through twice.
2: Well, you know, it's it's hard to know that 14% believe some things, others, they're still wrestling, they're struggling. Life is a long process.
1: Yeah, Yeah, you may, because you don't know, yeah, you may lay the groundwork that 10 years from now, they finally go, oh, geez.
2: What I always hope happens in the two-week summer program is it changes their trajectory just one-tenth of 1%. Mm -hmm. Because then after several orbits, you're going to be a completely different orbit or several revolutions. Yeah, and I was just so talking work. to
1: somebody whose kid is is his kid is 18. He started dating a non-Christian girl. She's really screwing up his brain. And my friend was like, "I don't know what to do." And I'm like, "Get him in some ministries." Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can afford it. I don't know. But, uh, what afford it? What what is it worth? What is the what is the price of the soul of your kid? And it's not that expensive. What is it cost to go through?
2: I think it's all in. Eight, eight, inclusive for the two weeks, I think is eighteen hundred dollars.
1: Eighteen hundred bucks to go to incredible Manitou Springs, stay in the facilities that you have, are amazing food, all that education. Especially if you're going to sit your kid. And college. if
2: somebody needs help, I want to know. I don't want anybody to not be able to come to Summit because the price is too. So we have people listening steep. to this from all over the world. If somebody is in India and they want to figure
1: out how to get yeah, there. And like, we
2: have a summit virtual program. So every summer, once or twice, we've been, even done it up to six, six of them in the summer if the enrollment is there. We have a virtual one-week program that you can take from anywhere in the world. So we've had students from literally everywhere in the world.
1: But fe- I would encourage if they can get to Manitou
2: or you have in Georgia or somewhere. somewhere we do. Somewhere. We, have a, we have two programs. We have one in Colorado and one in Georgia. The one in Georgia is on Lookout Mountain, overlooking the city of Chattanooga on the campus of Covenant College. Nice. And then our place here in Manitou Springs is just at the antique Grand View Hotel right above it's the incredible. downtown.
1: It really is yeah. incredible. But, you know, being around those other kids, it, it's, it's they sharpen each other. They can talk at night around the campfire around. I didn't get that or I thought that was garbage. And then they come back. And so there's a sharpening that happens when you're there in person. That's, that's right. But if you can't afford it, if you're in South Korea and you're going, I just don't have $2,000 for a plane ticket, you can do you it can virtually. Do the virtually. Right.
2: You can do virtually. You do the virtual program. Yes. Thanks, man. Yeah.
1: Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On The Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.